0: I'm Jonathan Bastion. This week on KCRW's Life Examined, vaccines are on the way. And while most of us are familiar with that nasty needle jab in the arm, that's not what happened when vaccines were first discovered. You would in- purposely infect a child with
1: the scabs or material from the scabs of a smallpox sore. And in China, they were inhaled through the nose. And in the Middle East, they developed a technique where you would basically poke it under the skin using a specialized needle, basically, that we today call a lamp
0: and it gives a very distinctive scar. And later, should vaccines be mandated for the common good? Should equality overrule utility when it comes to getting vaccinated first? How do we
2: value life? Are all lives equally worth saving? And and how much should we spend to save a life? The governor of New York said we should spend any amount of um, money necessary to save a life, and that's nonsense. There are always limits.
0: The history, ethics, and philosophy of vaccines, all ahead on Life Examined. Infectious diseases and pandemics have long-shaped human history, from the Black Death and the 1918 influenza pandemic to diseases like smallpox, polio, and measles. Today, the COVID-19 pandemic is marking its place in history, devastating lives and economies across the globe. But as modern science comes to the rescue with the promise of new high-tech vaccines, why are so many Americans still wary of rolling up their sleeves? Have we forgotten just how much vaccinations have benefited society? In his latest book, Between Hope and Fear, A History of Vaccines and Human Immunity, author Michael Kinch recounts the history of the modern vaccine and examines the implications of vaccine denial and failing to vaccinate. Professor Kinch is the director at the Centers for Research Innovation in Biotechnology and Drug Discovery at Washington University in St. Louis. Professor Kinch, welcome to Life Examined. Well, thank you for the opportunity. Let's talk about the history of pandemics, because um, I, I think we have a sense that you know there were, of course, some really big ones, certain plagues in our history, but, but they go really far back and in some ways shape civilization. Can you take us back in history and, and tell us about some of the big ones that, that are really worth mentioning?
1: Well, I mean, there are quite a few pandemics that have occurred. Pandemics are frankly older than our species. They occur every few decades and every now and then they impact history in in a major way. You know, major examples include when Athens and Sparta were at war, a plague hit Athens and it helped lead to the downfall of Athens uh the later on during roman times uh it, the antonine plague basically caused a number of different deaths and arguably led to um the roman empire beginning to falter and would later collapse again there are so many different examples of plagues coming to more recent history we've got obviously the bubonic plague and a lot of people feel that the bubonic plague outbreak which is sort of the big plague was responsible for the everything from democracy coming into being serfdom going away uh to many other things which basically restructured western society and and then entering within the last century or so the spanish flu was obviously a huge impact on uh, you know, Many people believe it it caused the end of the First World War, mm. and it certainly left a trauma and scars. And actually, in, in one of my books, I talked about how there's a direct connection between the Spanish flu and modern biotechnology, mm. because there was such a uh, need to understand what was causing both the viral infection that was caused by what we now know to be influenza, but then also these people that had influenza would a lot of times succumb to a bacterial infection. And there's a direct causation from going from identifying that bacteria and trying to understand why it was deadly to the creation of modern biotechnology.
0: Yeah, it's interesting. If you think about really those early examples in antiquity, I'm just wondering how did those cultures make sense of those plagues? I mean, did they, did they see it through a kind of a medical lens or more in a mythological lens? What do you know about that?
1: Well, I mean, there was definitely a mythology to it. And there was, you know, a lot of people felt that it was, got the gods striking back. But at the same time, there was a surprising amount of sophistication uh, to the point that in some cases, like in the Athenian plague, they would throw bodies over the gate at the enemy forces besieging Athens to try to infect the other army and the Spartans wow. actually broke off the attack so they were far more sophisticated in realizing that this could be transmitted from person to person
0: yeah that's interesting and so uh, this this kind of brings up this question of vaccines and and when at what point do we begin to see very primitive versions of this this notion that if you inject a small amount of that into your body you may develop these natural defenses
1: So the first vaccine actually was before vaccines, which makes no sense. But (laughs) basically, the first vaccine, and and the word vaccine is derived from the Latin word for cow, vaca. But the first vaccine was actually before vaccines in that that smallpox was a disease that we really don't appreciate today, thankfully, because we've eradicated it. But smallpox would wipe out large percentages, half or more, of a village when it came raging through. And so, what some folks—and it appears to be early in uh, ancient China—and then later it passed through the Middle East. It ended up in Turkey, and we'll talk about—we can talk about how it jumped from Turkey to first the United Kingdom, then the U.S. But the idea was to infect a healthy child, because frankly, children were the only ones susceptible to smallpox, because adults had presumably survived a bout of smallpox before. So you would—you would, you would in, purposely infect a child with the scabs or material from the scabs of a smallpox sore. And in China, they were inhaled through the nose. And in the Middle East, they developed a technique where you would basically um, poke it under the skin using a specialized um, uh, needle, basically, that we today call a lancet. And it gives a very distinctive scar. And this is a process known as variolation. And what variolation does is that it causes the disease in the individual for a time. And the disease, though, is less severe, hopefully, mm. and the person hopefully doesn't die. Nonetheless, there were high percentages of people that were variolated who died, right? Especially if you had a doctor that didn't do it very well. And it wasn't always even a doctor, a lot of times it was sort of a witch doctor because it was a process that was passed on down through generations. And so this was a very deadly process, and it, but it was better than facing the real smallpox and that you might get infected when, again, uh, a ne- the next outbreak comes through your village. But that created this fear of interference, uh, having someone put something foreign into your body, and that really led to an anti-vaccine movement predating the first vaccine.
0: It's so, yeah, and, and I mean... Do we have any evidence as to who came up with, I think, is what is a very radical notion, which is putting the disease into your body? Do we, do we know how or why that started?
1: Well, we don't know for variolation who first came up with it. It's thought to be probably uh, some ancient Chinese scholars. But in the terms of vaccination, we think we know who did it, but it's actually wrong. Uh, We attribute uh, modern vaccination, the idea of actually taking cowpox, which is a smallpox that cows get that is far less severe than smallpox, and you would scrape the, the pus from the udder of a cow that was having a cowpox eruption, and you would then intentionally put that under the skin. And we attribute that to a gentleman by the name of Edward Jenner in the United Kingdom in the late 1790s. But in reality, when I was doing my research for the book, it turns out that there were not one, but actually probably three other individuals, at least, who did this before Jenner, and probably the person that can really get the credit is a gentleman by the name of Benjamin Jesty, who again lived in the late 1700s. He was a farmer, and the key turns out to be milkmaids, hmm. because milkmaids, no matter where you were... Uh, what country you're in or anything else, a a person who milked cows for a living generally tended to have very nice skin. And they would actually, their skin was so nice that they were, in some cases, put in front of crowds of people to just admire. Hmm. And the reason their skin was nice is they weren't marked by the scars from smallpox. So Jesty put together, after a conversation with his milkmaid, that milkmaids didn't get smallpox and but they did get cowpox from the uh, they were touching the udders when they were milking cows and they would get this minor skin irritation on their hands and lower arms but that would seem to protect them from smallpox and jesty put two and two together and realized hey if we intentionally did this then that might be a good thing so jesty went through and did that and he was rewarded by the fact that when smallpox came through his wife and children were protected but unfortunately, he used his wife's dirty knitting needles to do the procedure. And he, re- he had been variolated himself. He, being jesty, had been variolated. And he remembered the procedure, and he tried to replicate it using cowpox, um, again, the material from the, the udder. And he caused his wife's arm to be infected. Mm. And the wife went to the doctor because her arm was infected. And he asked, how did this happen? She told him. And basically, the jesties were then run out of town. Because people were fearful that the jesties and then other people that were vaccinated later on would turn into these minotaur-like creatures and go ravaging through the village, killing their children.
0: Mm. Yeah, w- which speaks, I think, to this this question around around vaccines or variolation. I mean, you talk about even even further back that there was already an anti-vaxxer movement uh, way way back, isn't that right?
1: Yes. So um, going back to variolation. The idea was actually taken to Europe by this amazing woman by the name of Larry Mary Montague. And Montague was the wife of the British ambassador to the Ottoman Empire. So she was in modern day Turkey. And she heard about this variolation process, had her child, um, the son of the ambassador, variolated by a local doctor while the embassy doctor watched and he was and she swore the embassy doctor to secrecy because she didn't want her husband to know because she knew he would disapprove so the embassy doctor was taking quite the risk. Then when they went back to the United Kingdom, the embassy doctor was encouraged by Montague to teach others how to do this. And pretty soon there was this burgeoning variolation trade in the United Kingdom. This is, again, the 1700s. It crossed the Atlantic into the British colonies. And actually an early adopter in the United States, or what would become the United States, was a preacher by the name of Cotton Mather. Hmm. And Mather is famous for being, for example, the inspiration for the Salem Witch Trials and all the things that we think of as so primitive, But he was actually a progressive for his day because he adopted variolation and his life was threatened by anti-vaxxers who were terrified of the idea of getting smallpox, understandably so. But um, it was basically this fear of the unknown that created an anti-vax movement in the colonies that became the United States, in the United Kingdom, and that anti-vaccine movement has really persisted throughout history.
0: Mm. Still, I mean, th- this this change in, in understanding smallpox and working with the cow's udder, I mean, th- it seems to me that this, this was the tipping point in vaccines. So, I mean, y- yeah, you had, it sounds like an offshoot of anti-vaxxers, but where does the story go from there? Because uh, I take it that there were a lot of breakthroughs following that.
1: There weren't, which is surprising. Oh, okay. So in the late 1700s, again, this is the 1790s when the smallpox vaccine was introduced, then you get this century-long gap. And frankly, the reason why there was a century-long gap was that we really didn't understand the microbial world. We didn't understand that there were these things that turned out to be bacteria and viruses and so a full century goes by and you're now in the 1890s and you have people like Louis Pasteur uh, on in on the French side and Robert Koch in the German side and a number of the folks that worked around them and in both France and Germany you had now an identification of microorganisms first of all that they existed and second of all that they caused disease and with that now you had the ability to figure out how do we take this knowledge of the pathogen and either kill the pathogen and use that as a vaccine, or do what's called attenuation, which is to weaken the pathogen, and allow a non-lethal pathogen to act as a vaccine. So you get this burst of vaccination that basically occurs in the the late 18 or the last decade of the 1800s, and again we see a burst of it for about 20 years, and then it slows down again. And then the needs that are caused by the Second World War, where you have troops fighting quite literally all around the world, triggers the need for new vaccines to prevent exposure to pathogens that, for example, American troops would have to see in Japan. Um, And out of that comes, first of all, a lot of technologies, but also things like the influenza vaccine. That was really a result of creating a vaccine to keep troop readiness at a high level. And so then you, end the, you enter the, the fairly modern world of today, since the Second World War, where then in the 1950s was really the golden age. And we saw measles, mumps, rubella, diphtheria, pertussis, tetanus, and a number of other pathogens. We
0: could conquer them.
1: And, and these were scourges that were as terrifying back then as... COVID-19 is today.
0: So really, we live in a fairly unusual modern era, one in which we are more or less protected from these major diseases. But as we're learning right now, we're not totally protected. I'm just interested to hear that really the breakthroughs were a lot more recent than I would have thought, I guess.
1: Vaccination is shockingly young in that really it didn't take off in its current form until the 1940s. And it was a, we we took our eyes off the prize. Um, In the late 1960s, the 70s, there was really an assumption that between antibiotics, which effectively treated most bacterial infections, and vaccines, which could be used for many viral infections, the war against microbes was declared to have been won. And like anyone who declares that they won a war, it's usually premature. And we took our eyes off the prize. And frankly, we were helped a lot by luck. Because, again, pandemics are a very natural phenomena. They occur every couple of decades. And we were very lucky because other than HIV AIDS, we hadn't had a major pandemic since about 1968. And so we basically were caught largely unawares when this came back, despite the fact that, for example, we are just as susceptible to a new influenza pandemic as we were 10 years ago, 50 years ago, or 100 years ago.
0: Right. Can you give some more modern examples in the last 50 years or so of outbreaks or or vaccines that that were particularly important in U.S. history?
1: You know, one of the ones that immediately comes to mind is polio. Uh, Polio is a fairly modern disease in that if you were exposed to polio throughout most of human history, you would you would get it th- due to proper or improper sanitation you would be exposed as an infant and the polio virus infection of an infant turns out to not be all that terrible um, it, it causes an infection but it's usually not life-threatening and doesn't cause paralysis however if you are older um, if you are a teenager or an adult and you now encounter polio that can be death, that can cause death it can cause shutdown of the lungs or, or permanent paralysis. And the reason why you would be exposed at a a later age is because sanitation had done such a good job of keeping you away from those germs. Mm. So polio in the 1950s was terrifying in the 1940s. Um, Sanitation is sort of peaked um, and polio would come into town. It would oftentimes uh, be threatening or perceived to be threatening the water supply. And so uh, polio you would close all of the pools, you would close all the movie theaters. Basically, kids would have to quarantine. And their neighbors, you know, parents would watch as their neighbor's children suddenly were paralyzed. And making things worse, you have these iron lungs that would breathe for the children that had been infected and had their lung function heavily damaged. And it was a terror that we had largely forgotten, and frankly, until 2020. Uh, This fear of microbes and microbes are particularly insidious because we can't see them so we can't know when they're around when they're not around what's causing this disease or is there even a disease as in our imaginations and, and that's truly terrifying so mm-hmm. there was a vaccine developed in the early 50s which was done remarkably quickly it was a four-year vaccine development period by Jonas salk resulted in when the, the announcement was made that the vaccine showed positive clinical data, church bells all around the United States were rung out in, hmm. in joy. Fast forward a year or so when they're deploying the vaccine, and it turns out that this vaccine was a killed vaccine. It was chemically inactivated. Somebody did it wrong in a California-based company by the name of Cutter Laboratories. And unfortunately, a lot of children were infected with polio rather than being given the vaccine because it hadn't been properly inactivated. And this caused incredible terror to now the vaccine, not just the disease. And luckily about a year or two later, there was another vaccine that was an attenuated vaccine that came on site. And one of the remarkable things about history is that the parents who were in fear of that inactivated vaccine for fear that it hadn't been properly treated embraced the attenuated vaccine and allowed their children to be vaccinated. Matter of fact, they stood in line to have this done. Makes you wonder whether that would have still happened if it were today's people. Going through that same
0: experience right and it's interesting how uh, stories like that of polio or of this other american generation I, I just have this this memory of my grandmother growing up in iowa she had polio and i remember it, it altered uh, the length of one of her legs i believe and she walked with a crutch for most of her life but it's a reminder that these things were very present in our country not so long ago
1: Absolutely. I mean, this is really a, we live in a bubble of time as compared to most of the species history. And, you know, even my my mother remembers the fears of polio and you know, the paralysis that was due to just pure fear, not just the virus. And that is what we've had to combat. And frankly, we've lost a lot of that fear. And when I teach about anti-vax movements in my university courses, invariably, I have graduate students from South America, Africa, other places that don't understand the anti-vax movement, because they live with infectious diseases all year long, especially in these tropical areas. And so they embrace vaccines because they still live in that world that we've since forgotten.
0: So if some of these viruses were more present, or if they had been more present uh, and more threatening, do you think that we we wouldn't see the same portion of the population rejecting vaccines?
1: That'd be my assumption, that it would be so in front of us that we would realize that the damages caused by the microorganism far outweigh the damages of the vaccine and the vast, vast majority. And we did an analysis of vaccines to ask how many had to be withdrawn due to safety. And it turns out it looks like one officially and two unofficially, I think it's probably two rather than one, but that's remarkable as compared to the many hundreds of different vaccines that have been approved. And so, We've just blown out of proportion due to the fact that we've forgotten about the fear.
0: Mm-hmm. Can you talk about another example? This was in 1976 under President Ford. Uh, there was a really bad swine flu vaccine. And I think some people developed this very rare autoimmune condition, Guillain-Barre syndrome. Can a vaccine trigger an autoimmune system in the body to begin attacking itself? Very rarely, yes. And so 1976
1: was an interesting situation because it was a period of utter fear of the unknown or what might occur. And what happened was that there was a circulating influenza strain that looked for a time as if it was going to be a return of something like Spanish flu. Hmm. And Spanish flu paralyzed the entire world, killed perhaps up to or even exceeding 100 million people at a time when the population of the earth was a fraction of what it is today. And there was a real fear this was gonna come back and kill millions and millions of Americans. And President Gerald Ford had to make a decision. He could rush a vaccine and the vaccine against this pandemic strain was known to have a risk of what's known as Guillaume barre syndrome. And to give you an idea, and actually ironically speaking about polio, FDR, who is arguably the most famous victim of polio, probably his paralysis was caused by Guillain-Barre rather than by polio Um, and this is an autoimmune inflammatory indication that can be triggered by any number of things but this vaccine had a a low probability risk I forget if it was something in the range of one out of 50,000 let's say but that's still when you're talking about immunizing hundreds of millions of or 100 million people which was I think the population back then you are looking at a tremendous risk, tremendous numbers that are gonna build up from Guillaume Beret. And worse than that, he had to decide whether this was going to be a mandatory vaccination. Mm-hmm. And so he everyone he approved it, it moved forward. The good news is that the pandemic did not emerge. Um, this virus that look, looked like it was going to be terrible turned out to be pretty minor. Thankfully, we had the same situation in 2009 when a really bad looking virus coming out of Mexico turned out to be pretty benign. And, but the bad news was that the vaccination still took place and some people got Guillain-Barre, obviously very high profile. And some would argue that that cost forward the election. Mm -hmm. because he had but he had to make a hard call and that's one of those calls that you really hope the right people are in the right place and frankly i think he did the right thing given the circumstances you know it's an odds game Mm -hmm. and he he played that he he played his hand and sadly uh, i think it was a few hundred people ended up with guillaume beret
0: wow do you, though, have sympathy for certain demographics of Americans who are skeptical of the vaccine? I think, for example, of African-Americans and their history, where we saw things like the Tuskegee study, and there were all of these uh, these horrendous um, medical experiments on them. Um, and we also see, of course, how COVID is disproportionately impacting people of color. What are your thoughts on that?
1: So I'm nodding wildly. Um, that is frankly what we have is we've got to confront the fact that we have real history in which there have been there has been scientific experimentation and other just horrendous things that have been performed on certain populations including the african-american population with the tuskegee experiments what we need to do and i think the only way we can combat that and i wouldn't even call that an irrational fear that's a fact-based fear The way we we have to address that fact-based fear as well as the irrational fears is by complete transparency. And that means saying everything that we do and do not know about a particular vaccine, particularly these COVID vaccines, such that we are now able to convey, here's what we know about safety. Here's what we know about efficacy, how well it's gonna work. Here's what we know about durability, which is how long it's going to work. And frankly we've had to move so quickly in developing a vaccine that we don't know yet about the long-term safety or the long-term durability the effectiveness of the vaccine let's say a year 10 years 20 years out and that's unfortunately a risk we're going to have to take but i think we have to be fully transparent in conveying to people anti-vaxxers are not bad people they don't have the information and If we can give them the information, they will hopefully make the right choice. I always tell people there's a difference between ignorance and stupidity. Ignorance is when you don't have the information and you make a bad choice. Stupidity is when you have the information and make a bad choice. We want to make sure there's no ignorance whatsoever so that any anti-vaccine response can't be based upon ignorance.
0: Mm. And so even though we don't have the long-term data about some of these vaccines, what I hear in your voice is we got to go ahead, we got to be transparent and move forward with this.
1: Absolutely. I completely agree with that. And I sort of put my money where my mouth is in that I'm actually a volunteer on one of the trials. So I'm even one or two steps ahead Mm. in that I was willing to put my life at risk because frankly, my clinical colleagues are doing that on a daily basis. And the only way we come out of this Pandemic, as a population, as a country, as a planet, is by having these selfless acts. And that might be being a volunteer in a trial, which is admittedly extreme, or it's getting vaccinated when you're not 100% sure. And if there is any signal of toxicity from any of these vaccines, I can promise you I will be front-in-line making lots and lots of noise about it, and I've actually already done it because there's one vaccine I'm not sure that I am comfortable with until there's more data. And so, frankly, we should not be moving forward with vaccines, and we won't, I don't think, until or unless there's sufficient data to move it forward.
0: So you've actually taken one of the vaccines. Can can you tell us which one it is, and is is it going to be one that will be distributed?
1: I am not allowed to say which one is one that will be distributed, but also, frankly... I don't know whether I've been vaccinated or whether I received the saline control. Oh, I see, right. So it's, it's I don't really know. Um, But it is one of the major vaccines. Um, I didn't choose it, but I didn't, when I volunteered, I didn't intend to choose it. Um, And so it's, it's a situation that we, that's one level of taking one for the team and the team in this case being the entire planet. But a very different level will be once a vaccine has undergone the incredible scrutiny that to be sure that first of all, first and foremost, is the question, is the vaccine safe? Mm-hmm. Secondary is, is it effective? Does it block the disease? And for folks that have that are in trials, you, we don't know the answers to either, any of that. The For those that once a vaccine has been approved, you can have the assurance that it's known to be safe, at least for the three or four or five, six months that we will have evidence for before the vaccine starts to be given widely. Um, and so I wouldn't worry about the safety at this point. There's no, There are no triggers. Unfortunately, frankly, the government made a big mistake in, in labeling. And what I mean by that is calling the development of the vaccine Operation Warp Speed created an impression in the minds of many that this was gonna be done recklessly too fast without thinking about it. And I can assure you that there is absolutely no evidence that safety or recklessness has occurred. And frankly, the opposite seems to have happened. We just got very, very lucky that the first two vaccines, the two mRNA vaccines, appear to show incredible safety and amazing ability to block infection, at least for the the months after uh, immunization.
0: So in some ways, it was just bad branding by the government.
1: Absolutely, but that happens all the time. And there is always some suspicion that comes out with vaccines. Look, for example, at Gardasil, which is the human papillomavirus vaccine, which prevents cervical cancer and about five or six other cancers. That was branded early on by skeptics to be the promiscuity vaccine. Uh, And that, frankly, really hindered Gardasil sales for many years.
0: Well, do you think that... uh... Because we've been able to develop this COVID vaccine so quickly, and from what I'm hearing safely, and hopefully it'll continue so moving into the future, will we we be better prepared for the next pandemic?
1: Absolutely. I mean, that really needs to be the goal. Let's go back to the very beginning of the interview. A pandemic is a sadly natural phenomenon. Every decade or two, we get one and we had just been lucky to go through a fairly long period of time without having a major one. They will happen again. Um, That is guaranteed. And we don't, I mean, we always need to fear them and respect them, but we can be more prepared. And I think that is one of the biggest frustrations that we have in 2020 is that many of us who were involved previously in pandemic preparation have just been dumbfounded at how poorly the United States has handled this.
0: Well, Dr. Michael Kinch is the director at the Centers for Research Innovation in Biotechnology and Drug Discovery and the Associate Vice Chancellor at Washington University in St. Louis. He's the author of Between Hope and Fear, A History of Vaccines and Human Immunity. Dr. Kinch, thanks for the time. We appreciate it. Thank you very much. Still to come on Life Examined on KCRW, should vaccines be mandatory? Our next guest says it's all about balancing health and well-being versus freedom. That's all ahead after this short break. Stay with us. Introducing the KCRW Donation
1: Car, designed to be recycled, This first-of-its-kind vehicle will save you time, space, and hassle by disappearing. Enjoy the luxury and comfort of turning your underused car into a donation worth hundreds, even thousands of dollars. The KCRW Donation Car. Already in your garage, driveway, or on cinder blocks outside your house. Act now at kcrw.com slash cars.
0: Welcome back to Life Examined on KCRW. I'm Jonathan Bastian. We just heard Professor Michael Kinch say that the only way out of this current pandemic as a planet is through vaccinations. While Professor Kinch is confident in the research, the benefit to our society only happens through selfless acts, both by those who volunteer in vaccine trials and by those who decide to get vaccinated. Our next guest argues that vaccinations may also be a way to ensure personal liberty and freedom, especially when the alternative is loss of work, isolation, and quarantine. Julian Sabulescu is the UHIRO Chair in Practical Ethics and Director of the Oxford UHIRO Center for Practical Ethics at Oxford University in the UK. He joins me now. Welcome. My pleasure. So there is still this major skepticism in the U.S. about vaccines. Um, One study said that nearly half Americans are unsure if they'd even take the vaccine. Meanwhile, in the U.K., um, they're starting to give these vaccines out in this massive effort to vaccinate a lot of the country. Can you tell us about how it's going there and people's reactions to it?
2: Well, at the moment, there is vaccines being rolled out to to ninety year olds and then eighty year olds, and in that population, uh, there is a lot of enthusiasm because, of course, uh, they are the ones most likely to die. But um, you know, we're still we still have a relative scarcity of vaccine, so we haven't yet hit the wall and seen whether young people who are at much lower risk are willing willing to embrace you know, a, a vaccine which is de- been developed in, in less than a year when when normally it would take years, if not 10 years, to develop uh, such a vaccine. Right. Uh,
0: are there a lot of anti-vaxxers in the UK?
2: Yes, it's a movement that's alive and well, as as um, as they are all around the world. Uh, I, I would say that it depends on how, you know, there are fanatical anti-vaxxers who, you know, believe it's a conspiracy theory or, you know, that, that they're fake or... Uh, that the government is out to get us, but but then there are simply people who are concerned, and and that group is much larger uh, in COVID nineteen because um, I mean ordinary people who would ordinarily embrace vaccination are you know asking you know do do they need it what are going to be the risks and so on.
0: Right, right. Well, I mean, you're also a philosopher and a medical doctor. You you have a very interesting position at Oxford, and I. I wonder, as a philosopher, how how you make sense of the ethics surrounding vaccines and a government saying that we're going to try and vaccinate as many as possible, or even mandate it.
2: Well, it's a it's a question for a philosopher: was when is coercion justified? When can the state limit our freedom? Uh, we are already in the UK here in a, um, in, a in a new lockdown um, with three different tiers of restriction of liberty. So we've already had our liberty uh, restricted in unprecedented ways, you know, effectively for periods we were, we were under house arrest. Um, so you know, the question arises, when is it legitimate to, to use coercion? And, and I've written a paper on mandatory vaccination and argued that, you, you know, you can make vaccines mandatory uh, if four conditions are met. And the first one is there's a grave public health problem. The second is there's a safe and effective vaccine. Thirdly, that Mandatory vaccination is better than any other alternative, either voluntary or incentivized. And lastly, the costs are reasonable and proportionate. So it's certainly possible to make vaccines mandatory, um, just as it's possible to make quarantine and isolation mandatory. And in the US, California, I know, has um, mandatory vaccination. Children can't enter school unless they're vaccinated. Italy has fines. Australia withholds financial benefits. Uh, the no jab, no pay policy. So one of the issues is about deciding whether coercion is justified or not. Um, one of the other big problems is that we we have an extraordinary lockdown, which itself is, is costing lives and, and devastating the economy. You know, the UK has already racked up a bill, a bill of, of over £250 billion, and that's rising. Um, but people are dying from cancer. So it's about balancing um covid versus non-covid lives it's about balancing health and well-being versus freedom and those sorts of balancing acts are fundamentally ethical there is no there is no scientific fact about whether vaccination should be made mandatory or not it's about weighing different values
0: mm. So you talk about the, if these four different uh, causes or, or conditions are present, and do you think they are right now to justify uh, coercion or a mandatory vaccine?
2: Personally, I don't think so. Um, hmm. I don't think a COVID-19 is se- severe enough. Now, that might sound uh, a strange thing to say, but um, the, the risk in, in under 50-year-olds is very small. Um, if it were to be made mandatory, it should be made mandatory in people over the age of 65 because they're at, they're at the increased risk of dying. Somebody who's 30 has the same chance of dying of COVID-19 as dying in a car accident each year. And secondly, um, so if it were to be made mandatory, I think it should be made mandatory for, for, for older people. And secondly, I think the, the safety profile is inevitably going to be less certain than, than vaccines like measles or, or diphtheria or, or conventional polio that have been around for decades. This is a, a new virus, and both the mRNA and the adenovirus vaccines are new kinds of vaccines. Never been a vaccine against a coronavirus. It's a very unusual virus. And so it will take a year or two years to see what sorts of rare side effects, if any, emerge. So I, I do think that the safety profile is, is necessarily going to be different to other vaccines that we're more familiar with.
0: Hmm. Well, I know that there would be some medical professionals, at least in the US, who would push back and say that we need all the young people vaccinated uh, just for the safety of the older generation. And I also know that a, younger, a lot of younger people say, I'm healthy, I don't need it as is. So I mean, are we also setting a dangerous precedent by saying you're young, don't worry about it?
2: Well, I've argued in favour of mandatory vaccination for influenza precisely because the best way to protect the elderly in influenza is to vaccinate young people. In, in influenza, elderly people don't mount a good immune response, whereas younger people do. And and the vaccine is still, you know, in, in their interest. Around 100 young people die of influenza each year in the US. Um, so it, it's a kind of win-win situation in influenza and... Vaccinating the young creates herd immunity, which protects the old. But in COVID nineteen, that the it appears at the moment that at least the mRNA vaccines are effective, or the uh, the, the the Oxford vaccine is effective in in more in more elderly people, um, which is different to flu. And also, young people don't seem to be the sort of super spreaders that the that, that children and adolescents are with influenza. So. It, it might be that, that COVID-19 is sufficiently different to, to justify not vaccinating the younger populations in the way we might need to in, say, influenza. But a lot of this will depend on exactly how the vaccines behave when they're rolled out. Mm. And we don't know at the moment just how much the vaccines reduce transmission. That hasn't been a primary endpoint of the trials.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, but there certainly are arguments that that we need to get to herd immunity as quickly as possible, and that also involves vaccinating young people.
0: Right. I mean, we hear about those numbers, 70 to 80 percent to reach herd immunity. So that would mean not just elderly folks, but people of all demographics, right?
2: Yeah, that's correct. If those figures are correct. And again, there's a lot of uncertainty. Some people say a little as 50 percent uh, of the population needs to be vaccinated for herd immunity. So, um, you know, I, I think that, again, it will it will depend and it depends on how long immunity lasts, which, again, we don't know. Um, so, you know, it, it may be that repeated vaccination of lots of age groups is necessary to, to control the virus. And when people say we shouldn't have mandatory vaccination, you've got to remember that the comparison at the moment is... Is mandatory lockdown mm. uh, at least here in the UK. So when you're comparing it, and also unemployment, and also economic devastation, and also not getting your other diseases treated, so you have to balance the vaccination policy that you have against against the other sort of um, problems that we're facing.
0: At what point would you feel comfortable with a mandatory vaccine?
2: You know, everyone is running around in the UK at the moment saying we don't need mandatory vaccination because we just need to educate people properly, and. And, and I don't I don't have a problem with it. I think we should, whatever we do, be educating people properly. Um, and if that works, hooray, we shouldn't immediately move to a mandatory vaccination policy. However, I don't see how educating people properly about risks that we can't quantify is going to get rid of the situation. It's not that people are fundamentally mistaken when they have reservations. Mm. Um, they're, they're, they're They're appreciating the uncertainty of the situation. So I think if... If, if, if vaccination uptake is too slow, then we either need to move to a plan B or plan C. And plan B might be to incentivise vaccination. Right, And you can do that in different ways by, for example, um, cash payments is one area, but giving people greater freedoms, enabling them to travel, enabling them to, to work, enabling them to, to, to socialise more freely. Um, vaccination passports have been discussed a lot here in the UK. And then if that doesn't work, you might have to move to mandatory vaccination.
0: Hmm. Have incentive programs been used before for vaccines?
2: Well, it depends on what you count as an incentive. I mentioned Australia. Um, if you don't um, vaccinate your child, you don't get a childcare right. benefit. Now, some People say paying the childcare benefit is an incentive to get vaccinated. And other people say it's a punishment for not getting vaccinated. Mm. Um, so that that's the only real incentive um, that I know of. The 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 other one, which I mean, it's again, it's not an incentive; it's a form of coercion. Our vaccination certificates for yellow fever that enable you to travel um, to countries like Brazil or, or other countries where where yellow fever is endemic. Um, that's again a policy that's already in place that that uh, requires vaccination in order for you to have that that privilege.
0: Mm. Well, any final ethical issues that have been raised? for you over these past, um, you know, eight months as a philosopher that you've been looking at and thinking about? Yeah, I mean, I think,
2: and this applies to vaccination. We haven't talked about vaccination policy and who should get it. And and early on, there was a discussion of who should get the ventilators. And I mean, there's a huge elephant in the room that hasn't been discussed in, in terms of COVID-19. Um, and, and that is, and what's, what's distinctive about COVID-19? Are there huge stratifications in risk. You know, if you're over 80, um, the chance of dying is of, of COVID-19 is, is somewhere between 7 and 14%. You know, if you're 10 years old, the chance of dying of COVID-19 is less than dying of chickenpox. So it, it, the, 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 the risks are very different and um, there hasn't been a very uh, kind of direct confrontation of, of the issue that... Um, Different people will have different chances of survival, uh, and what factors should we take into account when we allocate either ventilators or vaccines? In the UK, the the vaccination policy is simply to provide the vaccines to people who are at the highest chance of dying. So, you know, we just saw a, you know a ninety year old being the first person to be vaccinated, but you might be thirty five and stand to lose fifty years of life and have a comorbidity that means you're at, you're more vulnerable to COVID-19, but maybe not as much as a 90-year-old. Now, should you be a higher priority candidate? What about healthcare workers? Um, should they be further up the list um, in terms of priority? And what about quality of life? Is, is that something that should be taken into account? Many of the people who are at highest risk also have dementia, and in some cases, severe dementia. Um, to the extent that they may not recognise their family or, or, or other people. Is that a factor that should be, be taken into account in the allocation of resources? Those issues haven't really been confronted. And we've just really devoted all of our energy to COVID and not looked at risks of other dis- diseases and also how to allocate our resources Uh, in the fairest and most just way. It's
0: a really interesting point. I hadn't thought about that. Of course, we think we want to give the resources, the vaccines to the most vulnerable. But what about the younger folks that have these underlying conditions and have a lot of years ahead of them? I'm not suggesting that you come up with an answer right here, but, but can you give us some insight into how we can think about this?
2: Yeah, there's, a, there's just basically a division um, between equality, which is giving everyone an equal chance, which will mean that you'll save fewer lives, uh, you'll save lives for shorter periods, and you'll, you'll save people you know, in worse situations, or taking into account your probability of surviving, uh, how long you're going to survive afterwards, and, and the quality of your life. So basically it's equality or utility, and different countries are committed to those factors in different ways. Um, one of the big problems with COVID-19 is that also your chances of, of surviving, you're more vulnerable um, if, if you're in a, uh, an ethnic minority group or African-American, um, if you're poorer, if you're obese, and if you're male. So, should those factors matter in terms of whether you get a vaccine or, or whether you get a ventilator or a treatment if there's a limitation? And, and that raises deep issues around you know, structural injustice, discrimination, uh, and we really haven't addressed those openly.
0: Do you have any feelings as to how you would prioritize any of this?
2: Well, we, we've done a number of surveys, um, and what what ordinary people think is that where there are big differences, say, in chance of survival or in length of life or in age, um, you, should, you should give priority to younger people, to people with longer to live, to better chances. And, and I think that's generally true. But, but where they're roughly the same, you should give people an equal chance. So we should give some weight to equality and some weight to utility. So where there are really big differences... I think we ought to take that into account. But we shouldn't be making very sort of fine-grained uh, dif- differential judgments. So I, I think, you know, to kind of, it's a sort of mealy mouth answer, but I think we should give some weight to equality and some weight to utility. Um, so, you know, we've, we've tried to, to, you know, draw up algorithms or, or decision trees or flowcharts for how to incorporate all of these factors. And some places in the US, such as Maryland, um, have developed protocols that, that for allocation of ventilators based on this, this kind of, of, of logic. But I think the main thing that you need to do as a society is decide what are your principles going to be? Um, because it's ultimately it's up to each society, each country, each democracy to decide are we give, going to give exclusive weight to equality, which is what the Germans do, or are we going to give more weight to utility, which is what the English do? Um, or some mixture of the two, and, and be explicit about that so people know what, what the principles are.
0: Mm. If you were to look across the pond at America, which do you think we value?
2: Well, actually, the surveys we've done of Americans, um, of, of or, you know, ordinary Americans, is that they're very utilitarian. Mm. I mean, they, they, they want to allocate the resources generally to where they'll do the most good, to people with the highest chance of survival, the people who will have the, the longest lives, younger people, and people with better quality of life. So that was quite striking to me. Um, but, of course, America has a very strong orientation around liberty and libertarianism. But when they have to allocate the resources, that they're, they're very um, utilitarian and, and, and want to see the most good to the most people. I mean, the other issue that you you know people have talked about are these vaccination immunity passports. Because, of course, employers could say, you know, we're only going to allow you back into the workplace and, and allow you to work if you've got, you know, proof of immunity, um, uh, proof of vaccination.
0: Mm. And that becomes a very interesting equity issue: who has access to the vaccine, who does not? And a lot of red flags there, I guess.
2: Yeah, I mean, one of the big issues, both nationally and internationally, is is uh, you know access to, to vaccines. You know, I saw today on the news that that you know the developing world will only be able to access enough vaccine for 10 percent of its population in 2021 and and countries like the us and, and the uk have bought enough vaccine to vaccinate their population several times over so there is you know a at the moment a focus on on nationalism and vaccinating your own country and then and then even within that country there's constraints over, you know, who can first access vaccine um, and and concerns that it won't be available to to people. In the UK, it's free. Uh, There won't be an access problem within the UK on on the basis of of, of financial constraints, but in the US, I I imagine there will be.
0: Well, Professor Julian Savalescu of Oxford University, uh, thanks for this interesting conversation. We really appreciate the time. My pleasure. Well, that's all for today. The producer of Life Examined is Andrea Brody. You can listen to this and other episodes on your favorite podcasting app. And while you're there, leave us a review. Tell us what you think. You can also email me your feedback directly at jonathan.bastian at kcrw.org. To learn more about our guests and this topic, check out our webpage. That's kcrw.com lifeexamined. I'm Jonathan Bastian. Thanks again for joining us. We'll see you next week.